Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we dig in deep to analyze the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. I'm Andy Nelson from thenextreel.com. We are, of course, talking about John Favreau's 2008 film, Iron Man. Kicking off this week with me is, once again, Matthew Westfox from the Superhero Ethics Podcast. Hey, Matthew. Hey, thank you so much for having me back. I've uh, had a lot of fun uh, talking about the last couple of minutes and looking forward to really getting into the meat of this press conference. Definitely. We're going to do that today. Uh, we are in minute 46. The minute starts with Tony talking about his daddy issues at his loving, <laughs> and it ends with Obadiah playing daddy mm-hmm. and stepping in to spoil the fun. So, yeah, this is uh, we really do get into the meat of this press conference here. This is we were talking about it last time that that kind of almost like this rift in his mind as to how he feels about his father and the love he has for his father but here he kicks us off in this minute saying i would have asked him how he felt about what this what this company did if he was conflicted if he ever had doubts or maybe he was every inch the man we all remember from the newsreels and i think that's a really interesting way to start this press conference off and this whole idea of loving this man who also was a weapons manufacturer and making weapons that kill these people. And as Tony saw, you know, weapons that the enemies had gotten a hold of and were actually killing these Americans and it becomes this place. And and as Tony says, it's, I I had become part of a system that is comfortable with zero accountability. I had written down those exact words. Yeah. They're, they're so vital what's happening here. Yeah, really. It's it it makes for such an interesting conflict in a character and it's I I don't know, for me it wasn't something I was expecting from a superhero film. So I I, I want to dive into that, but I want to start even by by one uh, it's a throwaway line that you mentioned but that I think actually says so much about his relationship with his father, which is where he says how much is he the man we all remember from the film reels. And yeah. to me that really struck me because I think if I grew up with a father who also happened to be on film a lot, but I grew up with him, my memories of him aren't from the film. They're from my memories of him. And part of what we learn later about him and Tony, but that I think is kind of being hinted at even here, is that Howard Stark was a fairly distant father. And and I think part of what we're getting at is that Tony was his son and certainly has some personal memories of him, but that in some ways Tony's memories of him are just as much the romanticized film reel images of everybody else's and and that you know again there maybe i'm reading too much into it but it really struck me as this very sad moment of him kind of acknowledging that he knew his father that he kind of knew his father the celebrity as much as he knew his father like just the man um which i thought was a very telling moment well especially when it's a father who dies when tony's a young man right and tony never really gets to uh, to know him on that adult level, you know, and so he he really, I mean, he knew him as a kid and growing up and obviously Tony was a genius and he was inventing robots and he was do- doing things with his dad and obviously uh, kind of fit well in kind of the, the whole uh, gestalt of what uh, Stark Industries was doing with the military and designing technology and all that. I, it, he, he was a natural fit. Right. And to that end, I think that all makes sense. But he was a kid and, you know, as a kid genius who's designing all this stuff, I mean, perhaps he wasn't necessarily needing as much love directly from his father as a kid, but it really ends up showing. Uh, and I think this is one of those moments where Tony's reflecting on some of that and and maybe 
you know, it's kind of his Charles Foster Kane moment where he's reminiscing about his past and he's like, you know, I, there wasn't that connection and I wish there was more. And I always felt like there was more, but now that right. I'm looking at it, there really wasn't quite as much as I, I really wanted and probably needed. Yeah. It's touching. I, I think it's a very good point, especially in terms of what the, the larger point you were making. To me, we, we talked about uh, in the last two minutes that Tony won, and I'm sure you guys have talked about some of the minutes up till now, that that so much of Tony's character up to this point is a person who doesn't ask questions. He has all these great things in his life. Many of them he's earned. Many of them were just given to him. And he doesn't ask about, you know, does this reporter really feel comfortable with this? He doesn't ask about who am I selling the weapons to? He's just doing things. And to me, this moment of, now he's starting to ask the questions. And so the next thing he wonders is, would his father ask these same questions? That to me is a really striking moment because as you said, this is the moment when he's really having to wonder and now he wants everyone else to wonder, was his dad the hero everyone thought he was? Or was there maybe something else going on? Was, you know, he he doesn't say that his dad was living with zero accountability, but that, that's a pretty strong implication and certainly that everybody around him was. And I think that's a really powerful idea of, you know, wondering at what, you know, in science, I think we always talk about the, the two different questions are, can you do something? And then should you do something? And, yeah, I, right. I, you know, again, I, I have the ethical bent, so that's always where I come down on it. And I think this is the moment where Tony is realizing maybe his father and thus him as well got so focused on the, can we make this bigger weapon, this better weapon? They never asked, should we? Yeah, and Tony even says earlier in the film, he says, that's the way dad did it, that's the way I've done it, and it's worked out pretty well so far. Right. Uh, it's like he, he hasn't really thought about any of it. It's just, this is what works. This is, this is just the way we do it, and it works, and we're just going to keep doing it. And I think that says a lot about who he is. And I, I think, actually, the film makes that point very nicely over the, you know, I mean, we're minute 46, all the minutes up to this point where we see him as a playboy and we get this sense of, you know, he's living the high life, and he doesn't think about any of this stuff. And that really kind of is the um, the foundation for this character arc that we're going to see with Tony Stark as he goes on this journey and everything that he's learned from Yinsen and, and all of the, uh, stuff that he's seen as a, as a captive with all the people in the military who were killed using his weapons and just the vast supply of Stark weapons that they had, it all speaks to who he is becoming and this change that is happening within him. Oh, yeah. It's it's really interesting. And we do, uh, you know, this is another point that we uh, talked about a couple days ago. We have a shot of Terrence Howard, who he, he came in late to the meeting uh, in the last minute. And we see him here as as he's reacting to Tony, as Tony speaks. And he, as a representative of the military, has a look on his face like, you know, he's a little worried about where this is going. It's it's kind of an interesting way to play this. Yeah, I, I thought so. And I, I one thing I, I, I'm particularly glad you noticed, pointed that out, is because we get three distinct characters all reacting to Tony. And I hope we'll talk about all three. You know, Obadiah gives a look, Rhodey gives a look, and then later Pepper gives a look. And, and Obadiah is, I think, clearly is kind of wrapped up in his, his own story of him, him having a lot of fear of where Tony's going. Rhodey's is very interesting because I think you're right. He's up until now, I think he, he, you know, he, he earlier refers to himself as Tony's babysitter, as feeling like he's got to always take care of Tony. And I think that, at least as I understood it, Rhodey is having this dual moment of, on the one hand, Tony is asking questions that Rhodey really doesn't want to think about because they're, 
they're undermining everything Rhodey does in terms of his own life with the military. But I also wonder if on some level he's just kind of like, wait a minute, where's the where's my friend the playboy? I, I have for so long been wishing my friend would grow up, would wishing my friend would take some more responsibility. And now he's kind of doing that. And, you know, as, as we see throughout these movies, Rhodey winds up being really conflicted, but then eventually being very much on, on Tony's side. And I think you start to see a little bit of that in that look because there is there's the the concern, but also there's the wait a minute. This is this is the person I've been wanting Tony to be for a while now. And start not necessarily that he wanted Tony to question the military, but that he wanted Tony to question something, to think about something, and not just to to kind of go along with whatever the moment said. You're right. I mean, most most of that moment with with uh, him, I, I guess I, I spoke a little early. I mean, a lot of that's going to happen in in tomorrow's minute. Mm. We'll see a lot of that look. But I think there's a lot of power in these looks. And you're right. Obadiah has some really great looks as as he is the one who is the most wary with everything. You know, he walks into this press conference completely just on. You could could say he's a little on edge because he doesn't know where Tony's going with this whole thing, why he called this press conference. And it's it's a really interesting uh, way that Jeff Bridges plays it because he is really policing tony even though he's acting like he's not policing tony but when he hears tony start saying some of the the stuff that he's saying about shutting down the weapons manufacturing division and all of that it's it's you know he's rubbing his his lip and he's wiping his forehead and he's jumping up and kind of taking over the podium to kind of try as, as we were talking about a couple minutes ago how he's really trying to control the situation and make sure that he's the one who's still in charge and it's it's nice the way that he kind of leaps up to kind of again try to take charge and be the one who's who's making the smart business decisions for the company because he no longer is a guy who's running on on his own ethics. It's all about the corporate bottom line. And, and to me, there's two big things I get out of this. One is we, we were talking before about how at, at what point do you, the audience, start to think Obadiah is clearly not not just the villain, an antagonist, and that he's out for profit, but that he is the villain, the person who becomes Ironmonger. This to me is one more scene where, and, and as you were saying, I think when we talked about last week, that for a while they weren't sure if he would do that or if he would be more of a, a light antagonist. This is another scene where I think it would still work just as well, even if he wasn't behind the plot to kill Tony and all this, because I can 100% believe Obadiah being utterly still like happy that Tony is back, wanting Tony to be okay, but terrified that Tony is potentially going to, to torpedo the company that Obadiah is in charge of. And, and so that's the first thing I get there. And the second is, I, I had not thought of it in those terms before, but what you said about Obadiah, like, daddying Tony. We've talked so much about how up until this point, Tony has never really taken any adult responsibility and how Tony is kind of this man-child. I think part of what we see in this moment is Obadiah has been actively trying to keep him a man child for a very long time. Yeah, and right. now part of what's happening is Tony is starting to act like a grown up and to ask her questions. And like you said, Obadiah wants to jump right up because he doesn't want Tony thinking these big adult thoughts. He wants Tony, you know, doing the genius things in the lab and not asking any questions. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting way that that relationship works and the way that he is really trying to run 
things from behind the scenes. You know, he very much wants to be the Wizard of Oz, right? He wants to be the man behind the curtains who's secretly running everything and likely has been that for a very long time because Tony kind of runs things off the cuff and isn't really paying attention to things. And I think that Obadiah likely has been making a killing, I guess you could say, by running the business this way and and doing a very effective job keeping the weapons manufacturing division working very effectively. And this point is kind of a big shift and it's interesting to see it play. You know, it's funny, where were you as far as your understanding of the Iron Man comics and all of the lore of Iron Man before you walked into this movie. Did you know anything about the characters in kind of that universe? Not very much. Um, I knew, um, I knew the song by Led Zeppelin, which I, I <laughs> okay, thought was a lot right. more connected and realized later it wasn't. It was deeply frustrated throughout the movie that we never heard it until we finally got it at the very end. But I, I, I knew that he was a kind of a, a superhero billionaire playboy that you know i thought of him as kind of a batman analog in that regard who had basically bought his way into the superpowers that other people had and i knew that he was connected to this larger thing called shield and to all these other heroes and i kind of knew vaguely about like some of the avenger stuff and things like that but that's basically all i knew i'm pretty much right there with you and so i really who had no idea who stain was you know Mm -hmm. i just i didn't know who he was i knew who jeff bridges was i didn't have a sense of him as the antagonist in the film i i really just you know i i didn't get enough i i just i had no idea because i i anyone who had read the comics and who knew who obadiah stain was would pretty much know walking into this as soon as you hear that name come up that oh this is going to be the antagonist or at least one of the antagonists because he's a pretty big player in in the comics but i had none of that so walking into this i felt like the film was setting me up for one of those stories where we were going to have two antagonists one would be kind of the business world antagonist which would be obadiah stain and then the bad guy antagonist who would probably be raza because raza seemed to be at this point the most antagonist character that we've seen in the film thus far and so I really didn't know where the film was taking me. And um, I wouldn't have been surprised if it continued that way. And we had one of those films that ended where you've got Obadiah trying to take over. And at the end of the film, Tony is able to take back control of the company while also defeating the villain. It just so happens that the way they made it, Obadiah was both. It's interesting. I just never, I, I, I guess in my head, I never pieced all of that together. No, I, I, I think I was kind of a similar place. And I think, at one of the later minutes we're going to talk about in a couple of days is when I first started to think maybe Obadiah is is really the full villain, but I certainly didn't think so during this press conference. I, as you said, I kind of saw him as the the corporate antagonist instead of the the, the real fight. Basically, I sort of saw that Obadiah was Tony Stark's antagonist and Raza was Iron Man's antagonist. Right, right. I, I think it's also though because, and here again, this is where um, I've talked about this before, but the way in which I feel like this movie sets the tone so well for so much of the rest of the MCU. I think part of it's because I didn't expect a comic book movie to have that level of subtlety. Yeah. And it's funny because now having watched so many of the rest of the movies, I go back and I rewatch it. I'm like, Oh my God, they're hitting me over the head so much with how much of a bad guy Obadiah (laughs) is. But I think when I watched this movie, it felt much more subtle to me because compared to the comic book movies we'd had before, it really was this idea of playing with, who's the bad guy and who's the good guy and could there be 
multiple bad guys doing things for different reasons and they're not always understanding each other. I really like that. Especially in a film that starts off with a character who essentially could have become one of the bad guys because Tony already is in the same mindset as Obadiah Stane. Yeah. Right? And and so it's interesting to see this character who kind of switches over from that mindset. And the only reason really that Obadiah becomes the bad guy is because Tony stops being a bad guy. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, no, I think that's true. I think, it, yeah, it, it's one of those things where, like, Tony and Obadiah are marching in lockstep. It's just that Tony stops. And Granted, Obadiah has this whole plot to kill Tony and things like that. Right. Um, but <laughs> <There's> I, that. <laughs> but I think it's because, you know, it, it's there's that scene much earlier in the movie where the reporter confronts Tony. And I remember every time I see it, I, I, I don't think the reporter's wrong. Like, I think she's kind of a little bit ridiculous in how she's, she's going about it and wind up sleeping with him and stuff like that. But I think the, comment, the, the questions she's asking him are, are dead on accurate. Yeah, right, right. Speaking of recorders, we do have a number of them in this scene, uh, although very few are actually credited. The credited reporters are Patrick O'Connell, Adam J. Harrington, Mira Simhan, and Ben Newmark, who are all, uh, all four of them are right up in the very front. And Ben is actually the one who speaks to Tony and asks him what happened over there. And actually, uh, uh, Tony says, hey, Ben. So obviously his character name shouldn't just be reporter. It's Ben the reporter. Right. So <laughs> kind of funny. We do have a number of other people who are uncredited who are also in the reporter scene. Dr. Mark W. Berry, Kristen J. Hooper, Flavia Maines Rossi, Robert McMurrer, Nick Nicholson, Elijah Samuel Quesada, and Chris Reed. Although looking some of them have pictures on IMDb, some don't. There are so many people in this room that it is really hard to pinpoint who's who and where they are. So I kind of gave up after a little bit uh-huh. trying to figure it out. <laughs> I can understand I'm that. Sure, I'm sure they're all there. They're either here or they may be in the end scene or they may be in both. It's, you know, there's, there's so many reporters, it's, it's hard to say. Right. Other than that, the other thing that I was going to mention is it's interesting how Tony ends up almost having a more vulnerable breakdown in the script than he does here he seems he does like i said he it feels like there's this element of ptsd with the way that he's acting but he still seems focused and he seems like he has an idea as to what he wants to accomplish here the way he starts out in the script it says tony gazes out of the reporters suddenly he seems vulnerable scattered the silence grows awkward obadiah is mercifully going to save him when tony says i can't do this anymore Hmm. pregnant silence everyone waiting for the stark punchline finally a reporter ventures you mean you're retiring and then tony says no i don't want to retire i want to do something else something besides weapons yes that's right and it's just it's it's interesting how i mean it kind of builds from there in a similar path but it's interesting how again there's just a subtle difference in the way the script plays out as opposed to the way the film ends up playing out and it's subtle enough where I feel like they really made the right decisions and they came to it. I don't know at what point. I don't know if this was a last minute thing. According to Jeff Bridges, a lot of these changes were you know, kind of on the seat of their pants and kind of creating frustrating situations for the actors. But still, I think they made the right decisions and I think it plays out nicely. I like seeing, even though Tony is acting strange and he's doing this whole love in thing, it seems like he's in charge and he's not just lost and flustering, you know? Yeah, I think that's a very good point. I mean, I I was saying a lot of things earlier about how Tony, to me, in all of this is kind of trying to shirk responsibility. Not shirk, that that makes it sound like a bad thing, but he he doesn't want as much responsibility. He doesn't want as much power. 
But I feel like that version of the script would make it seem like he really doesn't have any power in the situation. Yeah. And I like that. I like that here we see he really does still have the power. He's he's sitting down because he wants to be on their level, but they still all sit down with him, you know? Right. It, it Again, it, it sets up that thing of like he creates Ultron because he doesn't want to be the one to make the final decision. But yet it's his decision unilaterally to do that. Him having the power, him him having the power in Civil War. Like to me, the biggest thing I get out of him in Civil War is him saying, I need some I need a daddy. I need someone else to tell me when to use my power and when not, because I I know I'm gonna use my power and I don't trust myself with that. Yeah. Right. And yeah, I think that's that's what you're saying there is a really good point because it's he doesn't he wants to change things, but he still does have all the power. Yeah, he's a very interesting character, and it's gonna be, as we've said in, in past minutes, he, it'll be interesting to follow him over the progression of his character arc through this franchise and see how he's growing and changing and uh, kind of redefining what he needs and and how he works to get it. Yeah. Well, I don't have anything else for this minute. Do you have anything else? Yeah, there were two quick things I wanted to comment on. Sure. One was, and we we went into it a lot last minute, so I won't rehash it, but just that that line you mentioned about being comfortable with zero accountability. Right. To me, it it again, uh, it reinforces the thing that I made me as kind of someone who likes to see movies that talk about our own world, really fall in love with this movie was, you know, you think about this movie being made in 2008. This was the time when we were still as a, as a culture and a country still talking about our involvement in Afghanistan, our involvement in Iraq and, and what should our military be doing or not doing. And I feel like for the, for the movie to, to, to have a character at that time and place be saying, I've seen what our weapons are doing in Afghanistan. I'm not sure if that's a good idea. That's a very bold move at a time when a lot of these movies didn't want to in any way be controversial, in any way be seen as too conservative or too liberal. And it just made me really happy that the movie was kind of continuing that the the Stanley tradition of, yeah, comic books are supposed to be commentary on our own world and not just escapism. That's a great point. And the way that that's going to kind of develop and shape over the course of the films will be interesting. But it certainly is interesting just within this one. And I think Tony is really the perfect character for us to have these conversations and to kick it off because he is a weapons manufacturer. And you don't get those sorts of conversations um, really coming out of like Spider-Man or something like that. The totally different types of conversations you're having with those films. This is a great film that allows these stories to kind of give us that real connection to the real world and what's going yeah. on in the real world. And, and and it just puts that in that perspective that makes you think a little bit about some of the stuff that's going on. Yeah, I, I think that's so true. And and just the last thing I want to comment on, and here, here's where maybe I'm going to do my only like kind of second by second analysis. But at, toward <laughs> the very end of this minute, we, we talk about the look that Obadiah gives and the look that Rhodey gives. It's starting in second 53, 54, Pepper gives a reaction. Yeah. And she she had a kind of concerned look early on. But this look really struck me because, and maybe again, I'm seeing what I want to see. What I see is her being very, like, surprised, but a little bit of a smile starting on her face. Like, to me, we, we've known that she's kind of a little bit frustrated with Tony, and she kind of thinks Tony can be more than he is. And I mentioned this with Rhodey, but I think especially with Pepper, I think she's surprised, but I think she's a little bit impressed that he is starting to actually have some accountability and have some responsibility. I really like that look on her face because to me, it really sets up 
where she's going to stand and that she actually kind of wants that, that she's probably one of the ones who is most wanting him to take this new direction in things. Yeah. Right. Even though she uh, is in his employ and kind of works under this umbrella of, of Stark industries and has a successful career because of it. You're right. There's, there's an element of that connection between the two of them that I do feel you're right. It probably does. She probably does have this sense that she's, would like to see something change. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's very interesting. I, I'm looking forward to talking a little bit more of that tomorrow, uh, in tomorrow's minute, because I believe it's tomorrow's minute when the, the press conference will end and there will be a scripted moment with her that, mm. uh, that's not in the film. We can talk about that and see how it ties in with uh, your thoughts on this. Nice. Perfect. All right, Matthew. Well, uh, where can people find you? Want to remind everybody again? Yeah. So um, I have a podcast with uh, my colleague Jacob Leachich, and uh, earlier the earlier host was Paul Hoppy. It's at Superhero Ethics. You can find it on iTunes and Stitcher and some of the other podcast catchers. You can also find us at www.superheroethics.com. And then that name, Superhero Ethics, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. I will say someone else has written a book called Superhero Ethics. That is not me. That is not us. That is a very different direction. We had sort of cornered the market on the podcast thing, but it turns out someone can legally still use the name for a book. So more power to them, but that is not us. <laughs> um, but if you, yeah, Superhero Ethics. And you can also, I should have mentioned this on other times, but you can also email us at superheroethics at gmail.com. We always love ideas about things that we should be podcasting about. Uh, we tend to talk about ethical and moral questions from DC, MCU, Star Trek, Star Wars, a kind of broad range of uh, fantasy and sci-fi and, and superhero stuff. So thank you uh, for having me on this podcast, and I hope some of uh, uh, your fans want to check us out. And If you do, please let us know what you think. Fantastic. All right, everybody. Well, that is it for today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. Remember, make sure you subscribe to the show for free over at marvelmovieminute.com. And you can join us in our Discord chat room. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at The Next Reel. And of course, you can go over to patreon.com slash The Next Reel if you want to support us and get some cool stuff. Until next time, true believers. True believers.